Uh, hi, everybody. My name is John Pabon. I am on the Culture Matters podcast. Very excited to be talking a bit about my uh, my experience around the world and some of some of my some of my stories that I have to share with all of you. When you're developing your international business, one thing is often forgotten: cultural differences. The Culture Matters International Business Podcast does exactly that. Focus on international business and cultural differences. Chris and Peter guide you through the maze of business and cultural differences in every podcast episode. Get the global perspective here at the Culture Matters International Business Podcast. Good morning, John, or good evening, John, or good afternoon, John. Um, I know where you are, but the audience doesn't know where you are. So tell us a little bit about yourself and where you are, what your cultural frame of reference is. Uh, so explain and introduce yourself a little bit, please. Sure, absolutely. I'll do the professional stuff first, and then we'll get into the the stuff people tuned in for. So cool. I'm a su- sustainability author, consultant, and speaker. I've been in the space for about 20 years, uh, originally from Los Angeles, and then started my professional career in New York at the United Nations. Uh, from there, I moved on to a few different roles in the private sector at McKinsey, AC Nielsen, and also with BSR, who's sort of the McKinsey of the sustainability world. Uh-huh. And I have my own shop now, Fulcrum Strategic Advisors. We advise on sustainability communications and strategy. That's the professional stuff done <laughs> out of the way. Uh-huh. <laughs> but on a cultural perspective, again, so originally from the United States, Los Angeles, lived in uh, New York. And then I've also lived overseas, uh, for Americans overseas, in Shanghai, Seoul, and currently I'm in Melbourne, Australia. Mm. All right, that's that's good. Um, <clears throat> I read your bio and I looked you up on LinkedIn and uh, and all that good stuff. And the first thing that came to mind at this, the first question, I, I don't prepare a lot for these these podcasts. I prefer to, for things to flow. Um, but the first thing that that came to mind is, my, and the question is, are we doomed? <laughs> I am what I would call a pragmatic altruist. So I am not on the activist scream and be scared because we're all screwed side of things, but I am more of a a realist. So are we doomed? No. I think we're in a much better position than doomed. Are things going to change and we'll need to adapt? Yes. And we're seeing that already. So we're already having to adapt. And I think that's really what's going to be happening. My unique little part of the sustainability universe Mm -hmm. is I work with corporations. So I see a lot of the work that's going on behind the scenes that most people probably don't see. And I can can tell you hand on heart that there is a lot of work going on in the private sector to make a better future for us all. So because of that, I am pretty positive we're going in a decent direction. I don't think it's going to be Mad Max anytime soon. (laughs) Indeed, that was a scary movie Um, with Mel Gibson, right? With the shortage of gasoline and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's a long time ago. Well, then, then brings up the next question. You say we're in a in a decent position. Um, I just we're recording this in uh, the middle of April, towards the end of April in 2023. For these, for those of you who are listening in the future, um, I just read that Germany closed down its nuclear power plants and will switch back to coal burning. Um, that's bad news, isn't it? Or is that a silly question? No, it's not a silly question at all. And uh, coincidentally, it is Earth Week. So Earth Week is on uh, Earth Day is on Saturday. It it, huh? it is not a silly question. And I think my my perspective on things is 
given we're in a transitional period now, we need to make sure that whatever is happening, we're generally holistically moving the needle in the right direction. Uh-huh. So while Germany might be going back to coal because of all of the geopolitical factors that we're facing right now, there are other things going on maybe in the corporate sector or the private sector or, uh, sorry, in other countries around the world that on the whole is is moving in the right direction. So we, I don't think we can take things in piecemeal. We have to look at the whole situation. Uh, and ideally, Germany being a, a generally a leader in sustainability, they will get back in line once the geopolitical situation sort of uh, evens itself out. Geopolitical situation, you mean the war going on Russia um, in Ukraine, US, China, Taiwan, that's that's it, that stuff. All, all of the above, plus uh, all of the oil exporting countries not really uh, playing ball. Yes. <laughs> Making well, it, it difficult it for course. us all. That's mm-hmm. it. Yes. Um, so... Tell us a little bit back in and what what did you do within the United Nations and why did you step out of that? Don't you have more influence from there than what you're doing right now? Yeah, great question. So my role at the United Nations, I, I held a few. And for those who have worked there or those that haven't, uh, they love generalists. They don't like specialists too much. So they love to teach you a little bit about a lot of things and throw you where they need you. So that's sort of where I was. So I held a couple of different positions mm-hmm. that ranged from post-conflict peace building to decolonization, to nuclear disarmament, to counterterrorism. I am not a specialist in any of those things. I studied international affairs writ large. So mm-hmm. uh, they teach you enough to get you going and then you learn by learn by trial and error, which is kind of a scary thing when it's the United Nations, but that's how it works. That's <laughs> so how it works. Yes. that's how it works. So after a few years there, I was there for about five, six years. Uh, I was talking to some of my mentors and they said, you know, typically somebody your age right out of grad school would want to step out and go into the private sector and maybe come back a little later on in your career. That's how the organization works. So it's either a swan song for a diplomat or it's somebody who has had a professional career that can then come in with a bit of expertise. So that was what it was recommended to me. And that's what I did. I took a step out to really expand my my understanding of what was going on in the world. It was my first job out of grad school. So I don't think I could really say that I knew much professionally. I think it was the right move. Uh, it certainly honed my chops from a consulting perspective. I've been in the consulting world since then, which is I suppose not really the private sector. It's some sort of it's its own little beast, but uh-huh. that's the the path I've taken. I, I fell into sustainability accidentally. So I think yeah. when I got started about 20 years ago, it wasn't even called that. I know today people come out of school with degrees in sustainability. That didn't exist. I was really looking for a way to marry all of this public sector experience that I had at the UN McKinsey and AC Nielsen mm-hmm. in a commercial city like Shanghai, where I had just moved. Uh, Shanghai is not at all uh, sort of in the public sector. It's very commercial, very financially driven. And what I found was sustainability, really working with corporations on making them better corporate citizens. Okay. All right. Is, is, this is something I, I, I well, terribly disagree with with, um, with my wife. Um, she worked for UNESCO. Uh, or a, 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 how do you say, a branch of UNESCO. Isn't the United Nations a, a a teethless nothing uh, or financial monster. I don't know. Maybe I'm saying all the wrong things here. I'm just trying to get my, my, my head around it. And also because it's an international organization and we are talking about culture and cultural differences. So the United Nations can play a role, but they, 
I don't know. I, I I don't think they can they can punch a hole in a in a in a soft package of butter, as we say. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to use that. I, I think what we need to do is reframe what we think the United Nations is for. So mm-hmm. we have to go way back in time, all the way back to San Francisco when it was formed in in 1945. Mm-hmm. And if we think about it critically, the UN's role is just to keep the peace. It's to keep the status quo. It's to make sure that the countries of Europe don't go to war again and drag us all with them. Sorry. (laughs) That's essentially what the UN was created to do. Uh And maybe that's not so fit for purpose today. I Mm. think the UN has tried to make forays into other things that are well outside of its original remit. And that's why we sort of look at the UN and go, okay, well, that wasn't successful and that wasn't successful because we're holding it to a standard that it probably wasn't intended for. Mm-hmm. Within the organization and in some of the committees that I worked with, it's it's very much perennial sort of work. You see the same topics happen every year. The same agendas come up every year with the same things on them. All we do is just change the date. And that's on purpose because that leads to, to comfortability among the different delegations, it's predictability, and it essentially keeps us from fighting with each other. And I think in that respect, the UN has been quite successful in keeping countries from fighting with each other. We know we're today, even though it might not seem like it, uh, 2023 is probably the safest humanity has ever been. Uh, Although there are civil conflicts, civil conflicts are not the remit of the United Nations. It's Mm -hmm. only state to state conflict. Mm -hmm. So the UN has been successful. Uh, The UN has been successful on the humanitarian front in many respects as well, but even the humanitarian stuff is well outside of what it was intended to do originally. Mm -hmm. So if we just look at the UN from the perspective of keeping the peace, they've worked. If we Mm -hmm. held them to a higher standard, which we probably should, uh, then that's maybe when we get that disconnect between what they're accomplishing and, and what we expect them to accomplish. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I look at the EU or the European uh, Union or Commission as such, and uh, organizations like United uh, United Nations or UNESCO. It seems to be horribly expensive to that extent. But let's not talk about these politics because that's not the podcast that uh, that we're doing here. Um, you as an American, um, which part of the US are you from originally? Los Angeles. Originally. Yeah, you, you said so. Yeah, uh, and then moved to New York. And and then what made you move on a more personal note? What made you move outside of the US? So I had visited Shanghai in, it would have been 2008, just on a, a vacation, summer vacation. I had friends there and and loved it. It was sort of the height of the, the real quintessential expat that was making a lot of money and living the high life. That's what was going on in Shanghai at that time. Height of development, things moving fast, dynamic growth. And then I got back to New York and it was the middle of the financial, the global financial crisis. 2008, 7, making, 8, 2007. Exactly. 2007. Yes. So people were making very tough decisions of uh, should I eat tonight or take a taxi or all these things that didn't even register in a place right. like Shanghai. So I thought to myself, okay, John, you're, you're working at the United Nations. You're, you're working at these other organizations. You call yourself a citizen of the world. Go mm-hmm. explore the world. You have this opportunity. Uh, the the stars seem to line up, and I suppose the rest is history. the The assignment in Shanghai really, I only intended it to be for a few years, but ten mm-hmm. years later, I'm still there, looking for the next place to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what then led me to Australia and also to Korea. So, are you on are you on a mission at this moment in Australia, or is it still? Are you based in in Shanghai still? 
Oh, no, I'm currently in Melbourne. Um, so that's where I'm based now. It's my own company that I have. Okay. So that does allow me the uh, the freedom to travel and to get the the visas I need to stay where yes. I'm supposed to be. Now, in, Every, in everything's legal. Excuse me. <laughs> repeat that again, please. Everything's legal. I'm not doing anything untoward. <laughs> okay. Well, that's something. That's pretty good. Um, you have, and I'm reading your um, uh, your bio again, sustainability for the rest of us. Your no BS five-point plan for saving the planet. Um, that's a book that you uh, are right, are, have written, depending on when you listen to this one, of course. What are the five points? How did you come up with that? And there's a lot of questions here. Um, and who is ahead of the game? Which are the countries that are specifically ahead of the game are doing it really, really well? Um, for instance, I would consider Sweden. It's always Sweden that does really well. Uh, and China is really bad or Russia is really bad. I don't know. Just, yeah. So my coming to the book was yes really realizing that most people didn't have a shared understanding of what sustainability was. And I'll I'll explain in a second what I I describe it as. And really because of that, we weren't doing as much as we probably could. So the book is really geared towards uh, people who may not be professionals in the space that might not know anything about it. It's a starter kit for saving the planet. Uh And for me, sustainability is an umbrella term for anything that helps to save the planet or its people. I know most people think sustainability only relates to environmentalism, but that's just one part. There's social aspects, human rights, labor rights, animal rights. There's governance and transparency and and auditing and communications. All that boring stuff also goes along with sustainability. So it is a, a very big umbrella term. Okay. In the book, what I do is I I try to break that down. So I try to describe in in really simple sense so that we have a shared understanding and we're using the same language and we're we're talking about things in the same way. And from there, I help people to really go into these five points. And the first of which is to, again, have a shared understanding. If we're not talking in the same language, how do we expect to accomplish anything? So that's step one, point one. The second point is something I, I have to remind myself quite frequently, but I also tell others is that you can do anything, but you cannot do everything. So I think as people who care, we yeah. we probably want to do a whole lot of things at once. We want to feed the homeless person, read to the elderly, and save the dog from the pound. Can't do that. We're only one person. We only have so much time, resource, and sanity. So I would really encourage people to select what it is they're, they're either passionate about, or maybe they have a particular skill in or if you're financially well off, congratulations, that you can donate money to. That's the second point. So really picking what it is you're passionate about or you want to give to with the understanding that there are millions of other people that can pick up maybe where you can't. Yes. That's that's point two. Mm-hmm. Uh, point three is really a, a conversation around how we get out of our ivory towers. So I, I look particularly at NGOs, international organizations like the UN and UNESCO, uh, as well as academia. and Try to help those three particular groups understand that if they're just going to be in their ivory towers, they're not really making as much of a contribution as they think they are. We, we hear the, the off-sided phrase of hail, male, stale panels. That gets a little bit of a, a, a kick in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, academic discussions. And I think a lot of that is from my experience living and working in Asia, where with sustainability, at least we have to roll up our sleeves, get dirty, be in factories, be on fields. 
versus in the US and the EU, sustainability is quite mature and it's become more of a, an academic conversation. Hmm. So two very different things. Hmm. Uh, the next bit of the book is really encouraging people to just get out there and do things. I think for a lot of people, they want to do trial and error and maybe build a house in Mexico and then go give to charity. And I would just encourage people just to get out there and do things 100%. And I'll pick the book out now for anybody. I don't know if this is going on video or not, but yeah, that's the book. And it's actually backwards. <laughs> okay, perfect. So this is the book. You can kind of see the cover. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, just to be a pragmatic altruist as well. So like I talked about how I describe myself, whatever you're going to do, be strategic about it. Uh, and that really comes from frustration that I have towards the activist community mm -hmm. and a lot of the antics that they pull that I, I understand their hearts are in the right place, but their actions and, uh, and the results are probably not exactly where they want them to be. Mm -hmm. So I don't understand what throwing tomato soup at a Van Gogh has to do with saving the world. And if I don't understand, nobody else understands either. So to be much more strategic about their their altruism. Yeah, I'm I'm listening and I'm thinking about what um, what you're saying. So that's the um, yeah that's that, that was that's going on with uh, with me. So basically, you're saying do something. It doesn't matter what you do. At least you do something. Is there any country that is the, the, the are there good guys and bad guys? Yeah, so that's that's good. That was another one of your questions. Yes. Absolutely. And I've, I've written a second book, which will be out uh, at the end of May in the Commonwealth, and then in Europe and the US a little towards the end of the year called The Great Greenwashing. Uh, and that's where I, I do include an entire section about countries and what they're doing. So to your question, there is a fun little thing online called the Climate Action Tracker. And it's an organization that is watching what com what countries are doing against their Paris climate agreements. Yes. Currently, there are exactly zero countries on track to meet their agreements. So zero. there are no good guys or bad guys. Everybody's bad. Nobody's wow. doing anything. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it's a whole lot of talk and not a lot of action. Mm -hmm. They do put countries into categories. So there, I guess technically, I suppose there are ones that are better than others. Yeah. And you can kind of guess the countries that might be at the bottom of the list. So typically the countries that are petrostates uh, tend to be at the bottom, of course. Interestingly enough, Singapore ends up on there, which is kind of strange because they're quite a, a clean and green city state. But they're on there, I think, because of their reliance on oil and because of a massive infrastructure boom. Uh, China is not toward the bottom of the list, actually. So China is quite advanced when it comes to sustainability, even though they do get a very bad rap. <laughs> so uh, China invests more than any other country into sustainable innovation and technology. Uh, they can do things at a scale that most other countries and blocks like the EU can only imagine. Mm. Granted, they have a lot of work to do. So they're trying to turn around this massive battleship and it's going to take a bit of time. So I think in that sense, uh, again, to my earlier point, they're moving the needle in the right direction. I, I would give them a bit of credit for that. Um, I, I suppose everybody else sort of mingles around the middle. Of course, the Scandinavian countries, like you mentioned, are always towards the the better end of the scale. Uh, for some reason, Burkina Faso ended up, was it Burkina Faso or, or Guinea-Bissau? One of the two is, is always teetering towards the very top of the list. They're almost meeting their requirements. I don't know why that is. Uh, so it's a, a bit of a mixed bag. But long mm -hmm. answer to your short question, you can really uh, sort of guess who's 
more or less at the bottom. Okay. <laughs> is it is it also um, if I look at, for instance, if I look at the Netherlands and Belgium and France and Germany, I'm just this is sort of my my geographical uh, area where I where I well I, I'm, I'm, you're calling me in Paris at this moment. Um, <clears throat> the Netherlands they chose cars on gasoline gas right uh, or uh, what petroleum whatever language um the belgians and the french and the spaniards and the uh, italians they chose for diesel that turned out to be a bad choice uh, germany chose for gas that turned out to be a bad choice uh, france chose for nuclear that chose that that turned out to be a, a good choice quote unquote is there anything you can say about that is that are we making these kind of decisions not well or wrong or yeah I think the decisions are all being made given what the capabilities currently are. So I think for those for those of us who aren't in these back rooms, who don't really see what's going on behind the scenes, myself included, I don't see any of this stuff. Uh, the A lot of times the infrastructure and capacity is not quite there yet for where the public wants it to be. So I, I think of the example of, let's say, let's make it simple. Let's go with recycling. So we know we're supposed to recycle our stuff in Germany. They have just amazing levels of trash sorting and rules around that. And it's become so ingrained in culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, Being from Southern California, recycling is certainly ingrained in in my psyche and my culture. So so I understand that. Mm -hmm. But if we back up a second, we look at recycling holistically, only about 8% of all recycling around the world comes from households. The other 92% comes from corporations. Even within all of that, only a very small percentage is actually recycled, not because people don't want it to be or because people aren't trying hard enough to separate everything into the right uh, right bin. Mm-hmm. It's just that there's not enough capacity and there's not the right infrastructure in place. We haven't invented it yet. So the willingness of the public, the willingness of some of these states and these countries is there, but the practicalities aren't quite in place yet. What, so there's what, a bit of catching up to do and a bit of balancing that uh, that we're experiencing now that we haven't quite caught up. One hasn't caught up with the other. So is it is it a matter of, of um, um, attitude towards it or is it a matter of physical infrastructure not being there? I think it's a bit of both. So mm-hmm. I think it's certainly the willingness on the part of these should be pulled by the levers of government, honestly, uh, is not quite there because maybe there's not the political willingness or maybe there's no revenue in it or mm. a million other different reasons as to why that would not happen and then as well the the ability to create the infrastructure to pay for the infrastructure is also always going to sort of go to the bottom of, of anybody's to-do list because this is not even though it should be critical it is not a critical issue for most people right and most governments Okay. What and then another question? I'm I'm going across the board here. The, in the Love Netherlands, there's, in the Netherlands, there's currently a discussion going on about nitrogen, nitrogen being released by farmers, and the Dutch government, being Dutch myself, I, I follow the news. Um, the Dutch government has said there should be a reduction of I don't know X percent, say fifty percent. I don't know exactly the numbers. Is that and then you cross the border with Belgium or with Germany and the, the, the problem is gone. It doesn't exist there. It ends, it stops at the border. That's, that's one thing. It's, and then you look at China or you look at India, massive countries, lots of people, 1 billion or 1.3 billion people. Can't we, can we not get more, if you want, return on investment in countries like China or and India than in a tiny, tiny little, little blob on the map like the Netherlands? I think absolutely. And I think the, 
the issue we've faced thus far is we haven't really looked at it with terms like return on investment. I am very much behind the marriage of finance and sustainability. I'm very much uh, supportive of the corporate sector as the actor that should be doing a lot of this. A, they got us into this mess, uh, but B, the private sector has the the resources, the capacity, the financial aptitude, and certainly the the willingness to push these things along because they can differentiate themselves. So we've entered this virtuous cycle where companies are now more or less competing on being better corporate citizens. So that Mm -hmm. is a great place to be in. I think it's going to see exponential change in a a positive direction. But right now, where we are is certainly seeing things on a state-by-state basis. So uh, like you said, I think you hit the, the nail on the head the border happens and then all of a sudden this issue's gone. Of course that doesn't make sense. So that's where blocks like the EU should be should be really pulling those levers that are necessary to make change. Mm-hmm. Uh working internationally across borders, particularly between different countries that may have been, let's call them foes at some point in history, mm-hmm. might be a long shot at this stage. So the way to overcome those those real political chasms is to bring in that private sector because the private sector doesn't care about politics. They just care about making money. Yes. And sustainability, as we found out, makes pure business sense. You can make money from it. So that's where the conversation should be headed. Okay. Sustainability it can be profitable. And I mean, profitable, it, absolutely and good, good for your wallet and good for the environment, so to speak. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's when I approach a company, I can't go to a company and say, oh, we want to do this because it makes us feel good and it's the right thing to do for the planet. No, they don't care about that. No. <laughs> they, they care about dollars and cents. And there are case studies uh, going back decades of sustainability making pure financial sense for a business. Yeah. Good point. Interesting stuff. Yes, I'm looking at the clock here. We've been talking about um, 30 minutes, a little bit more or less. Um, and so I'd like to sort of towards uh, drift towards the uh, the uh, the end of the conversation. And I think it's it's I've got a lot more questions, so maybe we can do this again one day. Uh, but for now, possibly maybe you could give us uh, three tips on how to be more culturally competent, culturally sensitive, if if that makes any sense. Sure, absolutely. I'll I'll pull a bit from my experience in China because you sort of see the the good and the bad of cultural uh, appropriateness, I suppose, when it uh-huh. comes to a lot of the the folks that come from overseas. So the number one thing I would encourage anybody to do is to, and this is going to sound trite, but it's a hundred percent true. Get out of your bubble. Okay. In in Shanghai, in particular, you could easily be seconded to Shanghai for three years and never interact with any Chinese people. You could live in a walled villa, be Mm -hmm. transported to and from work. Maybe the only people you interact with are your housekeeper and your driver. That's not the point. (laughs) The point is to really embrace the culture, to to learn something new and to be kind of there with the people, Mm -hmm. which would then lead to point number two is, if at all possible, learn the language of where you are. Uh, there is so much to be said with understanding a language, not just uh, from a personal betterment point of view, but learning a language helps you understand more of the the people you're communicating with. I'm not talking about language. I'm talking about uh, the mentality because language informs of, of so much how we operate and our worldview. So certainly do that. Uh, I was very lucky to have been given the advice when I arrived in Shanghai. People said, learn the language before you really get into work or you will never learn it. I spent time immersing myself and it's hundred percent true. And I, I, I think, uh, thank God I did it. So that's point number two. 
Um, point number I'm three. blushing, John. I'm really blushing because I, I I'm a Dutchman. I speak Dutch. I speak English. I do. I can manage in German. I can. I speak Spanish, but I live in Paris and I don't speak the language. So I'm, I'm blushing. <laughs> okay, go on with number three, please. Uh, let's see. So, learn the language. Yeah. So it's it's definitely learn the language. And and just for anybody listening, this was not prepped. This is all on the fly, which I love. I love these sort of conversations. <laughs> um. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. I, I think it's certainly around, and I, of course, I'm thinking of this through the lens of of moving overseas and being an expatriate. It's it's being it for the long term. Uh, I've seen time and time again uh, uh, people really investing all of this time and energy, moving themselves and their families overseas just to leave a few months later, and it's probably because they didn't have the right mind frame. They thought, oh, this is just an easy thing to do. A, it's not easy. B, uh-huh. culture shock is absolutely real. Uh, yes. uh, so really understand what you're getting yourself into before you do it and and be prepared to make this uh, sort of a, a long-term life decision. I think that helps to really reframe everything that happens once you land on the ground. Yeah. Okay, I'm making some notes as, uh, as we're talking, as you're talking. Um, Learn French. I know, I know, I know. I was having dinner with a friend of mine and I, I asked him, give me one good reason to, to learn French. And he said, he said, I can give you 500 reasons not to learn French. But the one reason, <laughs> the one reason to actually do learn French is, is inclusion. Um, and, and that makes sense. I mean, in a, in a way, you've said that in, in, in more words than, than, than just the word inclusion, but that does make sense. <laughs> so I understand what he said. Um, and I, but I am listening to a podcast here and there. Is that, is that, does that help? I think it absolutely does. Yes. Okay, good. I don't John, know. The French people, are pretty unforgiving with their language, though. So, <laughs> yeah. The, the, the problem, John, here is is that in in the area where I live in in Paris, there's most people can manage in English, so there's not really a motivation for me to actually speak or learn the language. But nonetheless, I I'm I'm blushing still. Right. <laughs> if people want to get in touch with you, John, how can they do that? Absolutely. So it's very easy. Just check out my website, johnpabone.com, and you can find all of the nitty gritty information and details there. Okay. That'll be in the show notes. And I thank you very much for, um, uh, for this conversation. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. If you have not subscribed to this podcast, you can do so in iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher, and all other good places where you can find your podcast. If you are in iTunes, why don't you leave us a five-star review, because that will help the visibility of this podcast. Right, the music you hear in the background is from Ben Sound. Check them out at bensound.com. My name is Chris Smith. This was the Culture Matters Podcast, and I'll be back in two weeks' time. See you then. Bye. Overlooking cultural differences when you're developing your business internationally can be the biggest mistake you can make. Let Chris and Peter help you avoid those mistakes. Get in touch now. Go to culturematters.com.